Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and I'm joined today by Paul Betts author of Ruin and Renewal, Civilizing Europe After World War II, published in paperback in September by Profile Books. Quote, one of the most enduring myths of European history writing about Europe in the 20th century is that the century can be neatly divided into a tale of two halves, with the first half made up of episodes of war, revolution, and mass violence, while the second is a tale of relative peace and prosperity, end quote. In this study of the politics of civilization, Paul Betts challenges this two-halves historical narrative, the self-image of the European Union, and even how we think about pre-1989 post-war Europe. Paul Betts is Professor of European History at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. His work centers on modern European cultural history with a special focus on 20th century German history and the relationship between culture and politics. His earlier book, Within Walls, Private Life in the German Democratic Republic, was awarded the Frankel Prize in Contemporary History by the Wiener Library. Paul, thanks for joining me today. Great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, unusually, um, I'd like to start at the end of the book, uh, which is basically your afterword, where you explain the inspiration for the book and its its long gestation. C- can you take us through your thinking? Well, um, like a lot of books, I think it was driven by a certain amount of dissatisfaction toward um, the way that the period had been written. I mean, we have a, a great deal of very, very impressive uh, books on post-45 Europe, but at the scene, there were key issues that had been uh, overlooked or marginalized. And I was thinking in particular about, let's say, the role of religion, empire, decolonization, race, and heritage studies. So I thought I wanted to think about a different kind of post-45 European history that would account for that. Um, But it was not one in which I just wanted to kind of add these themes and stir. I was really thinking about how these themes would force us to rethink the place of post-war Europe in the wider world. So I really tried to make an effort to integrate Eastern and Western Europe as well as Africa. There's a chapter, for example, on Ghana, Algeria, and Senegal in terms of how these countries then recast the uh, European-African relations in a post-imperial perspective, also sections on South Africa and Rhodesia. And so I was using then as a threat, a red thread, the issue of contracting the debates and actions associated with the defense of civilization, how these changing views civilization led to the new politics of identity in an era of defeat, division, and the end of empire. And of course, in the early 20th, century, the term has been 
uh, absolutely everywhere. It's been a kind of term of crisis, a kind of effort to uh, defend this idea often commandeered uh, by the radical right uh, in Europe and North America. So I was in a sense trying to get a, a feeling of how this actually evolved and to um, recast our attention back to the much kind of more wide open sense after 1945 in terms of um, what people meant when they talked about civilization and in terms of the kind of discussion about identity, history, uh, kind of place in the world that became uh, indirectly then discussion about Europe's uh, shifting kind of fortunes and status in a very different uh, 19, post-1945 world. Well, I'm coming back to the uh, to the beginning. I mean, the opening chapters cover the formative decade after the after the end of the war, and you write that quote: "The experiences and stories of relief and rehabilitation in the early post-war period have been largely overlooked in European history writing, which tends to skate over the 1945-50 period as an interregnum between the end of Hitler's empire and the onset of the Cold War." And that certainly feels true, um, which is strange because. I tend to think the, the economic and political recoveries uh, have stories to tell us today about Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, and so on. So why do you think they are less interesting either to historians or readers than, you know, an, another book about Stalingrad? Well, I mean, I think in many ways that there's been a kind of, what well, now we call kind of a Whiggish uh, interpretation of European history, kind of story of Cold War divisions, st stabilization of both blocks, economic recovery, integration with, in a sense, a kind of story about the reintegration of Europe and a kind of post-89. Mm -hmm. And I think that particular period from 45 to, let's say, 1949 has been has been overlooked because it's 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 a period of enormous um, possibility, uh, cut in lots of different directions. And part of the reason I wanted to start there, 1945, was not just the magnitude of destruction and the kind of um, witness accounts of, uh, of of kind of life on the ground, destroyed Central Europe in terms of what this might mean for the broader history um, of Europe, but also kind of return attention to these humanitarian workers often coming from abroad. Uh, that felt they were doing, and they were doing a lot of kind of good work in terms of uh, doling out food and and shelter to a number of expellees and refugees. I wanted to, in a sense, start with their role, not just as um, key actors in the remaking of Europe after 1945, but as key, as key narrators. Uh, they were often left diaries, took a lot of photographs in terms of their particular views of what kind of um, post-Nazi decimated Europe actually looked like. Um, that was one particular impulse, but also to, uh, to revisit the effort to reclaim empire after 1945. I mean, I think for many uh, students and even historians, this kind of decolonization was somehow uh, baked into the post-45 moment. Of course, it was not. So I want to kind of return attention to this kind of effort on the part of the, the French, the Dutch, uh, the Belgians to kind of reclaim empire of 1945, often in the name of a kind of uh, um, warmed over civilizing mission in terms of the, uh, the kind of action and violence uh, that, that, uh, that set in motion and you know, how the language of civilization cut in many different ways. There's a kind of defense of empire, defense of militant Christianity, but also uh, for some then linked to leftist progressive causes like pacifism, welfare state policies, anti-imperialism, 
and even multiculturalism. So it's trying to return attention back to that kind of wide open discussion uh, from 1945 onward before, in the sense, kind of stabilizes around various stories and agendas from the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, that, that chapter on, on empire in particular is really interesting. I, I'd, I'd like to come back to that, but, but just um, the immediate post-war period, you talk about the, you, you have quite a lot of detail actually about the, um, the aid work, the, uh, the UNRRA and, and, and so on. Did you have to read, or were you able to get your hands on a lot of these notebooks and diaries by the aid workers at the time? And did you, you, know, did you have to go through those? Uh, a number of those are online. I went to the Imperial War Museum in London and read through uh, dozens of those there. Um, so that was really an effort just to try to get a sense on what they saw and were writing about. What did they feel they were actually doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the kind of kind of forgotten, we would call kind of vanishing mediators in terms of uh, a kind of a broken continent and then a story of uh, kind of stabilization, eventually then kind of Cold War division. So I, I wanted to, in a sense, start the story, story through their eyes in terms of what they were actually doing um, and, uh, and bringing about a kind of recovery, a kind of physical, but also kind of moral recovery mm-hmm. of the continent. And I felt that that was, um, for me at least, uh, the kind of right place to start because they were often people that were really forced uh, to deal with uh, the desperation, the difficulty, the kind of rampant disease of just this kind of catch as catch can kind of world of just coping. Uh, but in mm-hmm. their kind of diaries and photographs, this effort to uh, talk about that they were doing so in the name of, of a broader sense of, of service, sometimes Christianity, ideas of humanity and ideas of the re-civilization of the continent. So I in a sense decided then to uh, begin the narrative there. Yeah, and, and you make this very uh, good point, uh, very interesting point about the importance of photojournalism uh, at the time and how quick, how important it was in changing British attitudes towards the defeated Germans. And the you talk about the difference in the sort of occupation cultures between the British, the Americans and the French. Um, I, I was amazed at really how quickly you describe British attitudes as changing. It was essentially within a six month period of the end of the war, really, right? Yes, that was a big surprise for me as well. And I was really keen on threading through visual sources where I could. And photography, I think, played a very, very important role, as you say, uh, in terms of shifting British sensibilities toward ex-enemies, Germans in particular. Uh, So that was really uh, interesting for me to track in terms of the, not surprisingly, the kind of anger bile uh, resentment toward Germany, especially with the uh, revelations about the concentration camps in the spring of 1945 and then already by that autumn of 1945 how in a sense um, the effort to uh, persuade a number of Brits to uh, send over the ration cards to help rebuild uh, and and provision uh, ex-enemies was enormous I think kind of moral makeover and I think it was only possible through the um, popularization of a number of these photographs and a number of key British uh, war journalists that were photographing kind of life in the British sector, the British zone, actually. Uh, and they were doing so, um, I th- whether it's uh, it, explicitly or not, but certainly conveying a kind of pathos uh, of pity and compassion toward these people as, um, as kind of refugees, expellees, as people 
above all. And just you could see then the discussion, the newspapers starting to shift. Victor Golans, of course, the London publisher, mm. plays a very important role in the Save Europe Now movement, in a sense, turning this particular attitude, saying that British civilization begins by treating uh, our ex-enemies uh, as fairly and as and as uh, and and with justice as, as 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 possibly we could. That it becomes a kind of referendum then on the values of British civilization in terms of how we actually conduct our business in the British occupational zone. So that kind of moral language, uh, which became then, you know, had effects in terms of, again, people uh, uh, sending aid and assistance to Germany was really quite remarkable. I didn't see any equivalent of that in in the uh, the American French or the Soviet mm. zone. So I think and that became a, an important uh, milestone, I think, in the longer history of British humanitarianism. And I think this kind of story of 1945-46 was quite remarkable. Most people associate that with, uh, with uh, the role of the Catholic churches, uh, uh, sorry, the, the Christian churches, which certainly mm -hmm. it was, but it was also very important on the part of these secular organizations like UNRWA and others. And the British were really, in that way, very much in the lead, while the Americans had a much more kind of punitive uh, attitude toward their charges uh, in the American sector. The British had a much more uh, kind of open, forgiving and compassionate view toward what they felt to be um, kind of uh, fellow humans. And for a lot of uh, the churches becomes also a story of, uh, of fellow Christians in distress. Yeah, and, and the Christian theme is, um, is pursued quite a bit. I mean, it, the book identifies um, a handful of pivotal moments or institutions in the development of uh, post-war evolution of, of civilization. Um, and one of these is the, is the role of religion and its interplay with the Cold War. And you devote a whole chapter to the importance of the trial of Joseph Minzenti. Can you take us through this episode and, and its impact on this, this interplay between um, religion and the, and the development of the Cold War? That was another theme that I wanted to highlight. Again, I think it's been unfairly downplayed in many other surveys of the period. Um, this particular case, which is long forgotten, uh, exerted enormous impact at the time, not just for the international Catholic community, but for a range of others who are interested in this mm. uh, story as a kind of crisis of human rights. Uh, the CIA in particular was very interested in this story um, as in a sense what they felt to be revealing the, the dark arts of Soviet psychiatry and it really pivoted on uh, this particular Hungarian uh, cardinal who was accused of extortion, espionage and, uh, and uh, conspiring with uh, the Americans in particular. And so it was a kind of classic Eastern European show trial in a way that we're kind of used to from the 1930s but it made it different. This wasn't um, uh, a former member of the party kind of confessing uh, his sins, but uh, a, a very strongly uh, anti-communist uh, Christian leader uh, who supposedly through um, kind of uh, through pressure, coercion and drugs was then forced to confess. And the people that were there uh, in the room and the international press certainly knew this is not something that he would have done of his own accord. This was a huge amount of curiosity and fascination of what, what the Hungarian government had done to break down this very clearly anti-communist figure. So it became then a story about the danger 
of uh, or the threat posed to a number of Christian leaders in the East became again a story of the uh, the violation of human rights uh, east of the Iron Curtain and, and religious liberty becomes in a sense the human rights issue in the 1940s and then like I said uh, a number of other kind of international commentators are watching this very very carefully uh, in terms of kind of east-west relations and the status of um, of dissident citizens uh, within the Eastern Bloc so it was a it was a story that I was tracking as a kind of um, important early parable about the uh, deepening divisions between Eastern and Western Europe. And often uh, this particular language of outrage expressed in the West was the rhetoric of the defense of Christian civilization. This was seen as Christian civilization uh, in peril. And this became a way of mobilizing the international Christian community and a range of other secular groups associated with kind of rights defense. And so that language became a very important defining term to, in a sense, hold the Western alliance. Western Europe plus the U.S. is a kind of almost religious corollary uh, to NATO in this particular period. And one of the terms that also is an important one in this period is the idea of Judeo-Christian civilization. The idea it's not just uh, Christians then under threat that this is important for the West to put forward a, a new a kind of identity front made up of kind of Judeo-Christian values that was seen as, as absolutely instrumental. And it's that particular kind of religious language around the uh, agenda and the objectives of the West becomes a very, very important one in the 1940s and 50s. And I think this trial um, frames a lot of that early kind of Cold War rhetoric about the kind of substance and the mission of Christian civilization from a Western perspective in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, and it's actually really useful to, to read about that now because, as you, as you point out, we've gone through this long period of at least a perception of, of a circular uh, Western Europe, and now you've had this comeback of that kind of thinking coming from uh, Eastern and Central politicians. And now, you know, somebody who's potentially running for the presidency of France is, is running, is, is got, uh, using the same kind of language. Um, yeah, I wanted to come on that theme. I'd like to come back to some uh, thing you, you you write about, which is this. The I mean, Churchill pushed this idea of a uh, of a Christian Europe and made, protecting Christian civilization, and the interplay of that with the idea of Arbent land and a common Carolingian history binding France and Germany, um, and you you talk about that um, that political theme against a sort of uh, uh, imagery at the time of destroyed churches and rubble and, and so on. Could, could you talk us through that kind of thinking at the beginning of the, the founding of the European uh, economic community? Well, I mean, what you just said in the end, I, I thought also was quite important. I wanted to integrate the role of material culture, material concerns, and uh, church and cathedral restoration uh, became an important rallying point uh, for the international Christian community in terms of literally rebuilding um, um, Christian culture then at the heart of Europe. So that was, that was considered the kind of material expression of some of these broader ideological concerns. So I didn't, I wanted to write a book that was not just about elites talking about issues of civilization, what they actually were doing um, in terms of the, the kinds of set of reforms, practical 
initiatives that were driven forward in the name of this idea of re-civilizing Europe. And so the church and cathedral restoration, also the construction of new churches was in a sense an important uh, expression of that particular impulse. Mm. Um, yes, I also was trying to draw attention to the kind of early discussions about what was then the kind of European economic community, kind of a coal and steel commission, and, and it had a kind of strong Christian underpinning. Uh, I think we uh, long assumed that it's a, it's a secular club of Western Europeans that, of course, uh, with time had been expanded eastward, but it had a very, very strong kind of moral and Christian dimension early on. Uh, NATO, uh, for example, in their founding documents talk about the idea of defending uh, Western civilization. So I was in a sense trying to um, cast tension back to kind of the early uh, the kind of moral and Christian uh, kind of justifications uh, to try to build these transatlantic uh, political and economic units. That was in a sense part of the motivation and then see how those some of those particular issues eventually will disappear as they become much more secularized. But as you say, uh, in a kind of post-Cold War setting, some of this language has come back in ways that I found actually quite surprising. And Viktor Orban, when he's talking about, let's say, refugees from Syria and Libya uh, as, as assaults on Europe's Christian roots and European civilization, the fact that you see this um, range of other political parties and leaders across Europe and North America suggests that this language has come back with a vengeance. And I was just trying to sense of giving a little bit more context and breadth in terms of um, more attention to the ground from which many of these particular issues had sprung in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, and, and then you, so you have several chapters on, I guess, the, the opposite development, the, the, the more sort of secularized, um, uh, the politicization of housing, you know, the, the Marshall Fund exhibition with the US style living and, and how particularly West Germany and Italy wanted to develop in a much more sort of peaceful manner, peace and prosperity brought about new anxieties that developed also a kind of anti-Americanism that came from the left and the right. And, and this really, uh, I had no idea about this, but you talk about these etic etiquette books that also emerged at the time. Can you, can you walk us through that? Well, I was also trying to think about the, again, the material expressions of these. So the you know, discussions in the 1950s across the Iron Curtain of building new welfare states, you know, housing, health, hygiene, education, um, especially in the West, was often seen as the, uh, the, the expressions of a new material civilization, that these were, in a sense, the, the kind of beneficial, kind of positive, even for some kind of post-imperial uh, values and virtues associated with building a better world after 1945. So I was in a sense drawing attention to that, but also trying to uh, suggest that, you know, many of these particular um, impulses and initiatives are something that are actually quite common across the Cold War divide. Also issues of, let's say, science, the idea of civilizing science, turning it toward uh, more beneficial channels and purposes. Uh, you know, the anti-atomic energy campaigns in both Western, Eastern Europe. And I was trying to find those moments in which, as opposed to the religious element, we're talking about Christian civilization as being divisive, there were, another, there were other elements to which this language civilization could be shared and seen as actually positive as part of a much broader kind of European discussion. Um, the issue of etiquette books I found 
very compelling because they become, and there was a huge industry of these books uh, in the 1950s. Interestingly enough, the high point of this, um, this, this kind of cottage industry of these books is often after war. So, so there was a lot of these books written in the 19, 1820s and 30s after the French Revolution, again, at the end of the First World War, and especially after the Second World War. And it's all about the kind of stories of comportment, good behavior, uh, decorum, and they pivot on ideas of the civilization of the self. And they're often directed um, toward uh, young men who had been uh, essentially schooled, if you will, in army barracks in the Second World War. And as an idea of uh, kind of stories of pacification and re-civilizing these uh, men as, um, as, um, as a kind of enlightened citizens, as, as sons and fathers and husbands, as a way of turning the page on the kind of worst aspects of the Second War, turned away from that kind of violence and destruction more toward a world of, uh, of proper behavior and uh, courtesy uh, and civility. And that was something that I found interesting. I was really surprised to see that the huge industry of those books that took place in Eastern Europe uh, in the 1950s and 60s, often for the same uh, reasons, though, though not surprisingly stress the importance of socialist ideas of civility based on a world of equality, not a sense of class hierarchy, a world of, uh, of egalitarianism. And that begins then with treating other kind of citizens, uh, um, uh, leaders and members of uh, work battalions, for example, with the kind of courtesy, respect and dignity they deserve. So there was a, a huge amount of discussion about the idea of how do we turn from a, from a kind of warfare state to a welfare state. It also begins with uh, changing the everyday behavior of citizens um, in terms of their own habits, but how they interact then with the wider political community. Well, uh, as promised, um, I said we come back to the to the question of empire, and you you have uh, you have a couple of chapters on it. But the the central point you make is you say uh, quote the fifteen year period between the end of the war and the end of empire is usually glossed over in mainstream accounts of post war Europe, and and you know you make the the, the very nice point that four of the original six members of the communities were imperial powers at the time and you could say the, the other two were pretty you know a pretty recent history of attempting to have uh, imperial fascist uh, empires um but this history of the attempted as you mentioned earlier the attempted reclaiming of empire and this this really what seems like a very strange idea now of your africa um is really fascinating uh, could you expand on those well, I was trying to, again, return attention to the early post-war period in terms of the efforts on the part of these European imperial powers to go back into uh, Africa and Asia. With what justification were they acting? Uh, the French, Belgians, Dutch, Portuguese uh, were not surprisingly invoking this language of civilization, which they had, of course, in the 19th century. What I found interesting is as they were doing that, um, as they're kind of reclaiming uh, these empires, they were kind of cut out at various moments. And so I tried to spend a good amount of time looking at some of the kind of forgotten United Nations debates uh, in which a number of new, um, new members of the United Nations, uh, India, 
Ghana, a number of other um, uh, new uh, newly decolonized countries from Asia and Africa are then taking these uh, European imperial powers to task uh, for what in fact is happening. And so suddenly to, to catch a moment in which they're not used to receiving this kind of direct criticism uh, in an international forum like the United Nations, which is, of course was very, very different from the kind of imperial club of the League of Nations and uh, the difficulty uh, with which they're then uh, making their warmed over old rhetorical arguments to a very different and quite hostile uh, international audience. Uh, so I was in a sense trying to catch that moment of transition in which some of these powers are in a sense uh, resuming what they felt to be kind of old activity and then in a world in which this is no longer seen as um, acceptable behavior. Uh, so Belgium, Britain, uh, Portugal in particular were targeted for um, sharp uh, debate in the United Nations, as was France uh, with the Algerian War. And so in a sense, just trying to kind of mark that transition and how the language of civilization uh, was then used by both sides uh, from the imperialists as a kind of defense of imperial uh, conquest, and then from the other side to say, in fact, that these imperial, uh, imperial, imperial countries have forfeited their right to rule, they've in a sense decivilized um, themselves, uh, they've become kind of barbaric, they've turned into the opposite of the grand ideals, in a sense just kind of marking out that particular transition, the kind of rise of a very, very strong internationally organized anti-colonial elites, which had started in the 1920s, but really takes on global proportions in the 1950s and 60s, and how that language of civilization becomes, you know, very central to that marking that transition it was especially important uh, with the Algerian War, in which the French will use that language to justify their actions. And then the FLN, you know, the, uh, the kind of anti-colonial side in Algeria will then, in a sense, make an effort to turn the tables on their French uh, overlords by talking about the barbarism, the atrocities, uh, the killings that the French army had then uh, perpetrated in the name of French civilization and then do a series of graphic photography and a well-organized publicity campaign to, to, in a sense, scandalize and shame uh, the French internationally in terms of showing that they have um, they've betrayed uh, their very, very ideals. So that language of civilization and barbarism was at the very, very heart of the international discussions of uh, international conflicts like the Algerian war. And yet, funnily enough, as you, as you point out, the, the new Algerian re regime didn't turn their backs on French culture entirely. Yes, that was a surprise. And I was just um, building on some of this scholarship in recent years that despite all these efforts to kind of cut the links between a new independent Algeria and old imperial France. It was a part on a number of Algerian elites that essentially wanted to retain uh, the old holdings in the French imperial museums mm. uh, in, uh, in Algiers and elsewhere. This kind of effort to, to suggest that these things have a certain now Algerian patrimony. And even if these mm. particular artworks were uh, in the museum uh, and have been there as kind of symbols of Western power. The fact that the, the French have now uh, withdrawn, there was a part, there was an effort on the part of these Algerian elites to make a case on why these artworks 
belonged in Algeria. They were, had been on Algerian territory for decades, and uh, they actually become kind of symbols of a post-imperial Franco-Algerian uh, cultural partnership, um, mm. which again was quite surprising, I think, to a lot of the uh, French um, elites at the time, that, it, that despite the cutting of the military and political uh, linkages, that the cultural uh, foundations underpinning a kind of older story of French-Algerian cultural um, partnership or shared heritage was one that was maintained by Algerian elites uh, from the 1960s forward. And many of those particular artworks are still there, of course, in those museums in the Algerian capital. Mm. But it, it may just be me, but uh, maybe other readers are, are, have the same attitude. I, I tend to think of pre-1989 Eastern European regimes as, as something other, you know, something from outside Europe. But your, your chapter on their, their sort of cultural, political challenge in Africa was a really interesting corrective to that and the way they were seen by by Africans you know they, they, they essentially saw all Europeans as pretty much uh, the same well you mean from an African perspective is that what yes that's right yeah um, and I mean again the Eastern Europeans had their own interaction and relationship of course with Africans and Asians they wanted to an extend a hand of solidarity with Asians and Africans in the name of decolonization, in the name of international socialism. And a lot of uh, work was done, uh, of course, from Eastern Europeans in Africa and Asia, building of hospitals, schools, uh, roads, helping with a whole range of uh, infrastructure projects, um, many of which uh, still exist today. Uh, and then this effort that Eastern Europeans were arriving um, as different kinds of white Europeans. They weren't uh, Western imperialists. They're not there as part of the story of land grab and exploitation, but are there as partners. And sometimes that seemed to work quite well. The Yugoslavs in particular were greeted um, often with open arms. The uh, Yugoslavs, for example, were uh, very, very instrumental in giving um, aid and assistance to the FLN during the Algerian War against the French, uh, the leader of the Algerian independence. You know, Ben Bella, his first trip outside of Algeria was actually to Yugoslavia to visit Tito. And so, you know, Yugoslavia had a particular status as a outside the Eastern Bloc having stood up to uh, Stalin and the Soviet Union and as, of course, the leader of the non-aligned movement as a kind of special uh, European country, if you will, that um, often build very, very strong military, trade, uh, and political and then cultural relations with these countries. So um, it was one in which the Eastern Europeans put a lot of store in arriving in Asia and Africa as a different, more enlightened, um, post-imperial uh, Europeans. Uh, wasn't always to say that the uh, Africans and Asians on the ground saw things so clearly. Sometimes they also criticized uh, these Eastern Europeans uh, arguing that um, this doesn't look all that different to them, that these development projects uh, weren't so different from what was being um, uh, proposed by, say, the Americans, the British, and the French in this particular period. Uh, but the Eastern Europeans had enormous amount of pride with this idea of trying to do things differently. And so um, it, again, it, like a lot of these things, it depends on who you talk to. But for the most part, uh, a number of uh, 
Asians and Africans will look back on that Eastern European interaction with them in a kind of era of decolonization as being actually quite different and accomplished a number of things and all the exchanges between Eastern Europe, Asia, and Africa, for example, all the, um, the political leaders, the, uh, you know, the writers, the artists, the musicians, all that kind of cultural traffic linking uh, the second and the third world was uh, taken very seriously. It was seen as uh, an important gesture of, uh, of solidarity and fellowship, um, though there were others that felt again, that this was um, uh, kind of an, a, a European imperialism in a different guise. So really dependent on the experience and the local conditions. But it was one that was a surprise to me just how active and present Eastern Europeans were in the world in the 1960s and 70s. We have this kind of inherited image of a kind of locked up, fenced off Eastern Europe that's not really engaged in the world all that much outside of, let's say, the Soviet Union uh, and various kind of proxy uh, engagements around the world. But the Eastern Europeans were very much engaged. And you could argue they were actually even more international um, than uh, has been the case after 1989, in which it becomes much more a story about the renationalization of Eastern Europe, in which those mm. particular connections to what we now call the global South are much more modest. And uh, and much less developed than they were actually in the Cold War. So I'm part of a much larger research project uh, that's been based at the University of Exeter for the last um, seven years called Socialism Goes Global, which a whole team of scholars in a sense have been doing research on what is kind of called the kind of global Eastern Europe in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, from that perspective, a kind of post-Cold War Eastern Europe actually looks much more provincial uh, and much smaller uh, in terms of global footprint uh, than the actual Cold War period itself. Yeah, and it actually, I mean, you end the book uh, with this <clears throat> discussion of Central Europe um, and some of the leaders seeing it as, the, as the tr what you call the true Europe and its last bulwark. And there, there, is, there does seem to be a bit of a global movement um, seeing these, particularly uh, Viktor Orban and uh, his regime as a, as the last redoubt against uh, uh, creeping secularism and and Islam, um, do you do you feel that the with with the rule of law discussion coming out of Brussels and, and some of the northern Europe, particularly northern European uh, countries uh, and the struggle with uh, Orbán and uh, Kaczynski in Poland that really the the the, the theme of your book the civilization the, the claim to civilization is being played out in in real time at the moment. Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's been, I think, a very dangerous development. I mean, you're certainly right, Kaczynski, Orban, the way they're invoking civilization to justify right-wing xenophobic uh, agendas is for European historians not hugely new, but it's taking on this very uh, villatriolic um, uh, kind of presence there and the idea that Eastern Europe, or at least some of these countries, see themselves as a defender of a kind of old true Europe, meaning a kind of older Christian uh, Europe. And they're using this particular language, a defensive language, as kind of a civilization crisis in which the West no longer represents um, the, kind of the true patrimony of Europe, is something that we've you know, seen uh, in spades, I think, in the last six, seven years. And, you know, kind of spoiler alert, uh, I didn't write the book as a 
defense of the term, and I'm certainly not a champion for its recovery. It's more an effort to see how the term has had a very um, checkered and colorful political career. There was a kind of openness, I think, in the 40s and 50s. And now since the 1970s, it's a term that's drifted further and further to the right. Essentially, it's been, it's been monopolized by the radical right. And Urban Kaczynski are kind of picking up on what has been a trend, I think, since the 1970s. For a range of reasons, the left was interested in the term, I think, in the 50s and 60s, as I kind of show in the book, again, linked to causes of pacifism and anti-imperialism, multiculturalism. But I think by the time you get to 1968, the West, uh, Western intellectuals, Western activists had abandoned any, any hope in, in the, the term civilization. It was too linked, I think, to kind of right-wing defenses of uh, the state, the church. So you're not going to have a situation in which you have feminists or student activists in 1968 using that vocabulary, much more shifts to a language of democracy, freedom, rights, etc. Uh, and with that, that language of civilization, which is a kind of live, volatile, um, rhetorical field, uh, really drifts to the right and with the kind of founding of the you know, Front National in France, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the 70s, it becomes then a, a kind of term of, of, of identity and a kind of rallying term for the right. And I think what you get with the, the uh, Orbans and Kaczynski's Trump, of course, they gave a famous speech in 2017 in Warsaw, which he talked about the defense of uh, European civilization five or six times in that particular speech. It's now drifted so far to the right um, that I'm not sure what that will mean. It's certainly also we've seen in recent times the the uh, the killer, for example, in the uh, mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. If you you know if you take his online manifesto seriously, though, he said he was carrying out these heinous acts in the name of white civilization. So it's taken a very strong xenophobic, Christian, uh, and racist dimension in recent years. Now, when I was writing the book and I was finishing it, it really was hard not to be very pessimistic about what has happened uh, to, this, um, to this particular term. It begins as a term of kind of 18th century elitism, then it's linked up to 19th century um, uh, racism, imperialism, and war, and it undergoes a range of shifts in the 20th century, and there's a kind of openness from that 45 to 65, and then it really starts to um, become the uh, intellectual property, essentially, of the, of the right since the 1970s. But in recent months, um, you see offshoots of different sorts of things. I mean, for example, with the, um, with the pandemic, uh, there in a, a call for a number of scientists to talk about the idea of sharing medicine uh, and uh, medical provisions, scientific uh, knowledge research, and they will talk about the idea of uh, planetary civilization uh, in crisis. And so there's an effort to speak about the term in a kind of universal one, which is almost kind of synonymous with an idea of humanity. Uh, so there have been efforts in the part of the scientific community uh, at times to kind of uh, reclaim the term as a way of talking about international cooperation around health and medicine. So it's not to say that it's, we've kind of painted ourselves in a corner in which it's then becomes a justification for um, violence and racism, which of course it certainly has, but there's not to say that it may not move. I mean, it's got a very long and checkered history. And uh, I've been in this business long enough to know as an historian that, you know, what is our snapshot at the moment? 
it could very well change. And that this, uh, given the kind of um, enormous vicissitudes of the kind of political career of this concept as a kind of marker of identity in history, it very well might look very, very different in, you know, five to 10 years. But at the moment, it's one in which I think we have to be very vigilant about how it's being used to justify uh, a, a number of, uh, of really um, unsavory activities and um, mostly kind of a, a racist, uh, um, uh, racist baiting and uh, kind of mobilization. That's a partially optimistic place of which to end. Um, uh, to, to, to finish as usual, I've asked my guests to choose two books to recommend to listeners, uh, one from their own field and one personal choice. What have you chosen? Um, I would like to recommend Kieran Klaus Patel's Project Europe, uh, a history. It's a very, very good book on the European Union. I think it's particularly important uh, in Britain for readers, a uh, very kind of clear-eyed view of the difficult and quite contradictory uh, history of the EU. And he's a scholar based in Munich. I think he was, he needed a slightly kind of outsider perspective in terms of how he sees how all this has come about. So that's certainly something I'd recommend. And also, I'm almost finished with uh, Leah Epi's book, uh, Book Free, which is her memoir of growing up in late socialist Albania, uh, which is, you know, kind of a story about the collapse, uh, at least an idea of social civilization. So I certainly recommend it. Beautifully written. Uh, I think it's up for a number of uh, book prizes. And I think it's, um, it's you know, a, a personal favorite of mine. Right. Well, um, if anyone wants to catch up with Kieran Klaus Patel's book, um, I, I did an interview with him last year. So uh, please, <laughs> please look back at the archive. Um, uh, today, I've been talking to Paul Betts about Ruin and Renewal, published in paperback by Profile Books. Paul, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much.